0: Now on to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. I'm holding up a book in my studio, The Rifle, by Andrew Biggio, who joins me now on Skype. Good morning, Andrew. How are you?
1: Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. Nice book.
0: It's a great cover, by the way. Who did your cover art?
1: Hey, actually, I, uh, I, I, I came up with the idea of actually having the rifle form the letter I, but it was Regnery. Uh, that actually created the green background and the Marine on Saipan.
0: Well, it is a terrific book, and I want to begin by having you, Andrew. I, I'll tell you a backstory. I was in Maine this weekend with my brother-in-law, uh, two tours in Vietnam, Covan at one point, at one point the furthest North Marine and American in the country as uh, South Vietnam was about to be invaded, Easter offensive, the whole nine yards. He started reading the rifle, and he said, I had it with me. I got chills. And I'm sure everybody who's actually been in combat gets chills from this book. So would you tell people the concept, why he wrote it, how it's organized? Then we'll go through three of the chapters. I don't want to give away too much. We'll talk about uh, Woody and we'll talk about the running man. Actually, four. I think I'll do four with you. But give us the general concept of the rifle, Andrew Biggio.
1: So the concept of the rifle was, um, you know, I came home from Iraq and Afghanistan, and I wanted to meet America's last World War II veterans. Um, I understood that they were disappearing at an alarming rate, and I was the newest of the generation of uh, war veterans in this country. They were the oldest. What is the best way to learn wisdom and learn how to live a successful life with, with consulting with America's last World War II veterans before they're gone. Um, The last World War I veteran died in 2011 and I didn't wanna see a whole generation of veterans disappear uh, without learning as much from them. But I had to do something different. I had, a lot of these men never spoke of their experiences. Uh, Many of them had already told their story before, you know, what what made me different than every other person that's ever stuck a camera in their face. And as I brought the M1 Rifle with me, which was the standard rifle of that time, and I placed it in their hands and it acted as a microphone. You know, this was the rifle that was issued to almost every infantryman during World War II. Uh, General Patton called it the weapon that won the war, and placing it into their hands turned them into a 19 year old soldier again, a 19 year old Marine again. And I just pressed record on my iPhone and let them do the talking. And it's, I got stories. It's that, great,
0: by the way. You're a good interviewer. I, I've been doing this for 30 years, and most of the deal is getting out of the way. And you got out of the way of the stories.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and um, Andrew, show us the, the
0: rifle again, if you could. Could you sure. put it back on the screen? Go to the full picture <laughs> so people can see this, because it's not just a rifle. Notice that the signature of everybody that Andrew talked to is on that rifle. What are you going to do with that
1: rifle now, Andrew? It's going to stay in my man cave. No, uh, (laughs) it's it's destined for a museum, um, one which is yet to be decided. But if there's a museum that that uh, really shows me that they want it and they'll display it, that it's theirs. Honestly, after I'm done promoting the book, obviously, it needs to be on display for the world to see.
0: Well, let's talk. Let's begin by talking about Woody Williams. By the way, my dad carried that in the Pacific, though I never heard a shot fired in anger as two brothers did. My father-in-law, a Marine, my, my dad was in the 46th Army Division, uh, no longer with us, but uh, didn't have to invade Japan, thanks to Harry Truman. The, my father-in-law was with Woody Williams on Iwo Jima and, so, and on Guam. So I would like you to tell us about Woody, who I have met, Medal of Honor recipient. I've met to Woody and uh, the late, great Bill Barber. And uh, Andrew, you sat down with Woody, and then Woody liked it so much he wrote your foreword. So that's a big yeah. deal to have a Medal of Honor recipient write your foreword. Tell us about his story, because, you know, he carried a flamethrower as well as an M1.
1: Yeah, Woody, you know, I'm a, I am was a Marine, so going, being allowed into even Woody's house through the threshold of his door, it was like entering the tomb of a god, you know, Uh where, as young Marines were taught about him at boot camp, where I heard all the stories. I mean, not only did Harry Truman hang the Medal of Honor on his neck on the White House lawn in 1945, but it's how he got it with, a, with an instrument that we don't even use in warfare anymore, the flamethrower. In the, one of the Marine Corps' greatest battles ever, the battle for Iwo Jima. So, you know, Woody also served in a little unknown battle known as Guam. Um, so that was before he was actually on Iwo Jima. So um, I got to talk to Woody about his experience on Guam where he didn't use a, a flamethrower because of the terrain and, and uh, the coral and, and how Guam was very jungly. They didn't, there wasn't a, a whole lot of use for flamethrowers because um, the Japanese couldn't build pillboxes into the coral rock of, of Guam. So he was this traditional, basically, infantryman on that island. And it wasn't until Iwo Jima where, you know, his battalion cannot get through on Iwo Jima. They were just uh, stuck by interlocking fires of a set of intricate pillboxes on the island of Iwo Jima. And basically, Woody took out several pillboxes with the help of other infantrymen. Um, with the flamethrower, including he, he took out a Japanese bonsai charge that came at him with the flamethrower and his actions are accredited to help them advance through the island. Um, so it was and uh, not even just that Woody has dedicated his life to vet his whole life to veterans even after World War Two. So it's not like he got the medal around his neck. And, you know, it's getting free beers at the bar for the rest of his life. He's dedicated his entire life to helping veterans.
0: If, if people go to a Marine Corps birthday and uh, Woody Williams is there, you will be lucky. Like Bill Barber, like my father-in-law, they don't talk much about Iwo Jima, uh, but they your story tells it all. I, that's a great chapter. Let me talk about Santo de Salvo. Now, I like this because I grew up in Warren, Ohio, with a lot of Italian-Americans who served in the war. And they I've never yet heard. An Italian American talk about fighting in Italy, and you found one who did. Now I know there are lots of them, but tell mm-hmm. us about what Santo told you. Uh, Santo told you about his time.
1: Sure. So Santo served with what's known as the Texas Division. They're the 36th Infantry Division. They wear the T patch on their on their shoulder. And here's this you know five foot nothing uh, American from Italian American Santo De Silva. From uh from Leminster, Massachusetts, who is now in Italy, you know, where his parents came from.
0: With a bunch of good so, old boys from the south, right?
1: Yes, yes. So the poor guy is a northern uh, what he calls a northern guinea, this is what they're calling him, um, with a big uh with a southern division in 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 uh You know, in Italy. Okay. So now not only you, Italian, you're with the the Southern Division and you're in uh, a country responsible for, you know, causing World War II. So I was very, very interested to see what was going to be said, if they held it against him. And you know what? They, they, it wasn't like that. It wasn't, it wasn't like that. Nobody, there was no name while being in Italy. All that extra stuff was forgotten about. And it was, Shoulder to shoulder, how do we defeat the Germans? And that Texas division, uh, especially under Mark Clark, saw heavy, heavy combat, especially uh, in the village of San Pietro, where Santo was severely wounded and saw a few of his friends get killed. Crossing that river, Andrew, I I did not know. I've read a lot of World War II history.
0: I like it. Don't know much about the Italian campaign. Know about Mark Clark's reputation, which you detail. Had not heard about that river crossing and the marsh and the boats. It sounds they were they were repulsed right they had to go back
1: yeah uh basically it was um one of the biggest bl- uh, massacre blunders of world war 2 where um we're talking you know entire regiments uh turned down to uh basically combat ineffective um they just could not get across and i've been to italy where this river is and you would say like wow how how could they not make it across it's actually not as big as you think it is but when you, when you have each side of the riverbank lined with mines, zeroed in with artillery, machine guns, I mean, it was, it was a slaughter for these guys. And eventually, uh, yeah, it was a failure. And we ended up going around it and invading Anzio.
0: Now, Andrew Bijel, one of the, I'm picking the ones I'm talking to you about, how many different profiles of World War II veterans are in the rifle?
1: So the rifle itself contains 200 names. Um, 200 veterans who've signed my rifle that I've met. Some who could tell their story like it was yesterday, and some who had a, a little bit of dementia. So I, for the actual book, I picked about 19 of uh, of the best stories that I could tell 75 years after it happened, which was which was very very uh, tough to do. Um, you know, a lot of authors, a lot of historians, very fortunate enough to start doing writing in the 80s and the 70s and the 60s. Um, me. I'm 33 years old. I got into the game a little late. So I'm lucky to have found the men who could tell the story in, as they could. And I was able to corroborate it with historical documents.
0: Well, what I love is I, I'm a big fan of Stephen Ambrose, citizen soldier. But even 30 years later, you're still talking to the citizen soldiers. And I love that. Now, what you communicate in the rifle is they're fragile. These old guys are old guys. And you got to let them talk in order to get their story out. And their kids are sometimes with them. One of the remarks, I look for overlays, obviously, connections, every reader will. So what he fought with my father-in-law, Bob White, I have no connection to, the running man, except he ran the 1987 Marine Corps Marathon, and so did I. The difference is he's 30 years older than I am, <laughs> and uh, I, would you describe his how? I was stunned by this, and I want to hear Bob mm. White's story, because my hat is off to anyone who takes up running, serious running at the age of 60.
1: Yeah. Um, so, Bob was a, a, an instrumental chapter, uh, especially for me to tell younger veterans that keep yourself busy. If you experience tragedy, if you experienced war, go home, have a career, lead a life. And then when you finish that career, keep going. And that's what Bob did. After Bob raises all, all of his kids, retired from his job at age 60, like you said, he started running. Uh, he is now 98 and he holds... Um, uh Virginia's uh record the state of Virginia's record for oldest uh man to run a 5k at age 98 he's still running uh He had
0: run a 5k right before you showed up right
1: Yes he did I agree. Yeah, that's which that's pretty amazing that would He would have been 96 then yeah So he had just finished the uh Thanksgiving uh Turkey Trot uh yeah. something they do in um in in Virginia in the city he lives in and he, you know, he was just an inspiration of, 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 a, of a man who won't stop and keeps his mind occupied. And then, you know, now his new thing is collecting all these road races and these medals. And like you said, he finished his first marathon at age sixty.
0: There's another lesson in his in his uh, chapter for everyone who served and has not yet been commemorated in a book. I had never heard about the 17th Airborne. And again, I have read a lot of World War II history. Complete news to me that there was another airborne division just like you, 82nd 101. You betcha, a Bridge Too Far, Saw, seen the movie, read the book. I had never heard of the 17th Airborne. Apparently, you hadn't tell people about them because I think that's really going to be news to people.
1: Yes. And you know what, Hugh, you're exactly why I directed the book. Everything you're saying is why I directed that book in this manner, is because I'm trying to educate people in the year 2021. Um, about World War II and World War II history, not just what you saw on HBO, not what you just saw uh, in mainstream media. So the 17th Airborne Division um, got to Europe relatively late. So their first action is the Battle of the Bulge. So they're paratroopers, but they don't, but they haven't jumped yet, right? So they're just thrown into the Battle of the Bulge as regular infantry, and <clears throat> they take heavy casualties in the Battle of the Bulge as regular straight legged infantry. <laughs> So that's their introduction to combat. Hello, here's the biggest ground battle ever fought. You're thrown in there in the harshest winter that Europe's seen in uh, however many years, hundreds of years. And that's your introduction. Once you complete that, well, gear up because now you're going to jump across the Rhine River into Germany. So you're – while these other paratroopers had their jumps in Holland and Normandy not knowing what to expect – Here is a unit that went through the Battle of the Bulge and now is being asked to jump into the fatherland, right? The radical country that started the Nazi movement. You're being uh, assigned to be the first ones to have a parachute over that country. Um, That had to have been a very anxiety, anxious, and worrisome mission for these men, and they did it. Um, Couple thousand casualties jumping over the Rhine, but they secured specific locations to allow uh, ground transportation to make it over and start really spearheading into the heart of Germany.
0: You know, uh, Andrew, when I read about Bob White, I was thinking there are a lot of movies in this book. I don't know if it's been optioned by Hollywood yet, but there are a lot of movies in here. Bob White uh, and maybe uh, Lawson, who I'm going to talk about in a second, they're both movies, but Bob White is really a movie because they did their five parachute jumps by landing and getting back in the Jeep, driving back to the airfield and doing it again, because they were rushing to get them going. They get yeah. there. And then you describe expertly the winter conditions, which I've read about. I knew Bob Fischelis, who was in the middle of the bulge and, and froze his toes off, cutting off their fingers, cutting off their toes, walking around while they're sleeping so they don't freeze to death. Then they send them and say, now you get to do your – they give them another jump, don't they? They give him a six-practice jump before they jump into yep. Germany. And then mm-hmm. they land amid the Panzers. Uh, it's just a while. And then he becomes a marathoner. If that's not a movie, I don't know what a movie is. So if you're an agent and you're listening, go option uh, Andrew Biggio's But <laughs> last story I want to talk about again. You got to read this. As my brother-in-law said, you got to read this a story at a time. And act, that's not how I get ready for books. But but if you're enjoying the book, a story at a time. I got to come back and talk about you, Andrew. But tell us about Lawson Sockeye because I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. Because not many people who went into an internment camp ever got out of one in World War Mm -hmm. II in America. That's the difference. Tell us about his story.
1: So Lawson, uh, for those who don't know, is a Japanese-American who grew up in California. He goes and then tries to um, enlist right after Pearl Harbor like his white friends are. Uh, Of course, his white friends are accepted. They get to join the Navy or wherever they're going right away. And they look at Lawson and say, you can't join. You're an enemy alien. That's what they label him as. That's what the recruiting station labels him as in 1942 or three. You're an enemy alien. He says, but he looks at the recruiter and says, and I can see the, the, the emotion in Lawson's eyes 75 years later. And he looks at the recruiter and he says, but I'm an American. And it didn't matter. The government didn't know the allegiance of the Japanese-Americans after the attack on Pearl Harbor. They had no idea if they were going to stay loyal to Japan or be a loyal American citizen. Um, so that's when you start to see the development of the internment camps where Japanese-Americans were placed in there. Um, the anti defamation uh, Japanese defamation league ends up campaigning big time to congress to give japanese americans a chance oh and by the way if you were japanese american and you were already in the u.s military you had your rank stripped you had your job stripped and you were nobody now you are probably cleaning toilets so congress decides to give the japanese americans a chance and they form the 100th battalion and they're not sent to the pacific they're sent to italy they are so damn good that general mark clark says send me more japanese americans this is where the 442nd regimental combat team is joined uh, is formed and lawson sakai is one of those members of uh, of l company and many more men are recruited out of these internment camps they had the option to say no they didn't have to do it but they still rose their hand they fought in italy they fought in france they rescued an entire lost battalion of santo de salvo's uh, division, as we were talking about earlier, and they went on to be the most decorated regiment of the whole Second World War. The 442nd Regimental Combat Team, Japanese Americans from Hawaii and California, um, showing the Nazi enemies who's boss.
0: The late Senator Inouye received the Medal of Honor for his service in that. And but it's it's line soldiers like this. It's a great story. And Andrew, my hat is off to you. This is a great book. The rifle combat stories from America's last World War II veterans, and they are our last, told through the M1. And it, now I want to ask you about you. Uh, when did you join the Marines? Where did you serve, and when did you become a New York policeman?
1: Sure. Um, I'm a policeman in, in Massachusetts.
0: Oh, I'm um, sorry. Oh, I've slandered you. Don't tell me you're a New England Patriots fan. Now, the interview is <laughs> going to be over in a hurry if you like Belichick, but go ahead.
1: Uh yeah, I joined in 2006, I got to Paris Island 666, 6606. And um, it was hell there, it was the first time an 18 year old kid like me was leaving home and uh, I, I became an infantryman and I served in Iraq in 2008 and Afghanistan in 2011. And um, yep, been a police officer for about seven or eight years now and um, this, this rifle is just my passion, my hobby, my therapy, I, I, I've been wanting to meet these men since I was a little kid and I woke up one day and I, I saw the need to, to get out there. To, to
0: there's do a, it. there's a, a story of journeying in every chapter because you did this 200 times of which 19 are in the book. But so mm-hmm. you, you made not, 200 journeys. You had no guarantee of the book getting printed. You had no contract. You're out there doing this. And is, any, is, is anyone in your family saying, you know, Andrew, we need the lawn mowed. You know, we, we, you know, Andrew, we got to get, we got to go to the ball game. That took a lot of, how much time did this
1: book take? I think I got my first signature from Joe Drago, Battle of Okinawa. That's when I saw I was onto something. When I placed that rifle into his hands and he was a fragile old man, bound to his recliner, not able to walk and seeing him raise that rifle to, into his shoulder and waving it around, smiling ear to ear. And anyone can see this on my Instagram page, the rifle. When I saw that, I knew I was onto something. That's why I asked him, "Hey, sign my rifle. Add your name to the stock. I, I always want to remember this." And when I left his front porch, I remember looking down at his name on that rifle. I remember looking down at that first name and said, "I got to get as many names as possible." Um, but yeah, so that was probably 2017. That first signature. Here we are in 2021, and I still, um, I still have probably like another 10 veterans lined up to sign, well, add I- their names.
0: I mm-hmm. hope the World War II Museum in New Orleans, which is the only museum I've found uh, surviving members of the greatest generation who fought the war, on duty, still greeting mm-hmm. visitors as they come in. I hope they're carrying your book because it's actually an exhibit. It's an exhibit they can take home with them. They can take home a picture book or they can take home the stories. You're totally and right. You're totally I, hope right. You, I hope continued success. My hat is off to you. It's a perfect Fourth of July weekend interview. I appreciate your time. Congratulations on the rifle. An honor to talk to you, sir.
1: Happy Fourth of July. Thanks for
0: having me. You're welcome, Andrew. That concludes today's episode of the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. Andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did. And you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview.